Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 5, we read, Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I'll come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way. And as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. In the next few chapters, we see the king in all of his power. Matthew has grouped together ten miracles to prove to the reader that Jesus Christ possesses all the powers of a king. But not an ordinary king. He's the predicted king. He has power over disease. He will later demonstrate that he's going to have power over disaster and even over death itself. In verses 1 through 4, we see Jesus healing a man with severe leprosy. And now Jesus will heal a man of palsy or paralysis in verses 5 through 13. In the passage, we see a Gentile coming to Jesus for help. By the way, in Matthew's gospel, there are two instances when Gentiles come to Jesus for help. Here, and then again in Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. In both of those cases, Jesus will heal from afar. He'll heal from a distance. Some Bible teachers suggest that both the healing of the leper and the healing of the centurion's servant take place on the same day or right near the same time. And you'll remember that the leper was an outcast both of the religious community and the broader culture, but now we see another type of outcast, the Gentile. Certainly there was a court in the temple for Gentiles. But most Gentiles would be barred from social and cultural interaction. If the Gentile converted, if the Gentile was circumcised, if the Gentile was ceremonially cleansed, then the Gentile could participate in the life of the nation. Otherwise, Gentiles were considered to be unclean. To interact with a Gentile on the social level would have been considered unacceptable in that culture. And so for a Jewish rabbi to even suggest going to a Gentile's house would have raised furrowed eyebrows. 
And I'm sure the religious leaders were watching Jesus closely in this encounter. Luke's gospel gives us additional information. In Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, we discover that this centurion was greatly loved and he was beloved by the community. He was admired by the Jews of Capernaum. He had helped them build a synagogue. Jewish friends came to Jesus on behalf of the centurion, begging for help, reminding Jesus that if ever there was a worthy Gentile, it's this guy. And it would also seem that he doesn't consider himself worthy to receive such an esteemed guest in his house. Now again, we read that, and I'm certainly in absolute agreement with the text that this Gentile is humble. But I'm also going to suggest to you that the Roman centurion also wants to provide a cultural accommodation for the Jew who would be loath to enter a Gentile's house. We have every reason to believe he was wealthy and probably had a spacious home and a number of servants. A centurion was an army officer of Rome. That means he had charge over a hundred soldiers. We also know from history that a Roman legion was stationed in the Galilee. A Roman legion has 6,000 soldiers. So these 6,000 soldiers would have been partitioned into what the Roman world called centuries. There would have been 60 centuries and he would have been the leader over one of those centuries. Now, whatever else the position meant, to get this post and position, you had to have proven leadership skills. You also had to have proven loyalty skills, and you had to have proven battle skills. Judea and the Galilee were occupied territory. Now, you might imagine how some Native Americans might have felt when white people first made their way into the Colorado Territory, or how the French felt when Germany occupied France, or how the Germans felt when the Russians occupied Germany. Throughout time and throughout history, people who occupy other people's lands were viewed with fear and suspicion and often hated. And we discovered that this particular centurion is different. On so many different levels, however you measure difference, this person is different. He's different in his heart. He's different in his conduct. He's different in his interaction. But you're also going to discover that he's different in his faith. Look at verse 5. It says, now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Capernaum is a city on the very northern part of the Lake of Galilee. And it would serve as Jesus' ministry headquarters. And when he says that he comes to him pleading with him and that his servant is lying at home paralyzed and dreadfully tormented, many, many Bible teachers who have looked at this particular passage have reminded us that paralysis is a fit symbol for the human soul. And the human condition. 
And so right away you begin to discover something. Whatever is happening in the text, this centurion is pleading on behalf of someone who can't plead for themselves. And perhaps many of you know exactly someone like that. A husband, a wife, son, daughter, family member, or friend. They have absolutely no desire to know God. They're experiencing a paralysis of the heart. When you talk to them about God, you talk to them about the Bible, you talk to them about the church, they have no interest whatsoever. But when we look at this passage and we look at the character of the centurion, what might we glean? Well, we discover that he has a deep personal interest in his servant's condition. John Corson gives us a hint. He writes, a wealthy Roman approaching a poor Galilean, a powerful centurion seeking a meek carpenter, a mighty man of war addressing the prince of peace, unquote. You couldn't get two more different people, different in their outlook, different in their culture, maybe even different in their language. Vance Havner, who's a Baptist evangelist, relates the story of an elderly lady who was greatly disturbed by her many sorrows and troubles, both real and imaginary. Finally, she was told kindly by her family, Grandma, we've done everything we possibly can do to help you. We've done everything that we can possibly do. The only thing that is left for you to do is to trust in God. And a look of despair just came all over her face. And she said, oh dear, has it come to that? Havner comments, quote, it always comes to that. So we might as well begin with that. It always comes to that. There's going to come a time when all of the earthly resources that you have, both financial and relational, aren't going to be made available to you. In Luke's gospel, we read that well-meaning Jewish friends plead with Jesus on behalf of the noble centurion. And again, some people think we we go to church or or, or we have a Bible as as a sort of a last resort. People's lives are falling apart all around you. And you say something like, hey, would you like to go to church with me? And they go, what? Hey, I know I'm in trouble and I know I'm in deep difficulty, but I don't think I'm there yet. My advice, continue to ask them. For many people, they think once they've exhausted every other possibility, that they're forced to try God. And you would think that the way some people approach God, they imagine a kind of cosmic Godfather who takes favors only to ask for greater favors from you in the future. I'll go to church, but... Does that mean God's going to want me to do something for him? I mean, what exactly is involved in this transaction? Both the leper and the centurion don't really ask for a favor. 
If you look at the text, it's very interesting. Both the leper and the centurion call him Lord. Both simply state the facts. You can cleanse me. My servant is paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. But again, this should show something to each and every one of us. How different from the scams and the schemes of so-called modern faith teachers and faith teaching that says you have to demand your healing. You have to command your faith. Here, faith merely means talking to Jesus. And it would appear that both the leper and the centurion have, have not so much been schooled in the fine art of asking Jesus for help. But again, it begs yet another question. Have you ever struggled with how to ask Jesus for help. You sit there and you go, hey, something's wrong here. Something's wrong here. Something's wrong in my heart, wrong in my marriage, wrong in my life, wrong in my circumstances. And you grew up in a world where you don't know how to ask for help. And you certainly don't know how to ask Jesus for help. What do I say to him? How do I approach him? And it appears that both the leper and the centurion start on the basis of truth and on the basis of transparency. They just simply say, this is the truth about my life. This is what I think that I need. I think the same is true for each and every one of us. We have to admit the truth about our condition and the difficulty or the need and make no mistake about it. A centurion is the epitome of self-sufficiency. Now clearly he's a man in authority and he's a man under control and he is a man who's used to having his way and getting it done and he's also a no-nonsense person. He knows how to live and he knows how to fight and he knows how to take care of himself and he knows how to take care of his family. The centurion was responsible for discipline and the the centurion was responsible for morale. One ancient writer described the character of a centurion this way, quote, they must not so much be venturesome seekers after danger as men who can command, steady in action and reliable. They ought not to be over anxious to rush into a fight, but when hard pressed, they must be ready to hold their ground and hold their posts even unto death. Isn't that the picture of an American soldier? That's also the picture of the vast majority of men and women who serve in law enforcement. They were Rome's finest soldiers. The centurion seems to genuinely love and care for his servant. This in itself is quite unusual since most people in the ancient world treated their servants or slaves as little more than living tools in service to their master. A slave in that culture and in that society had no rights and the master was free to treat him or her any way they deemed appropriate. Yet this man loves and cares about this person. 
And I'm going to suggest to you in defiance of the social and cultural norms. Why is that important to you? Because Jesus is attracted to people who care about other people. Does that shock you? Does it surprise you that Jesus is attracted to people who are full of care and full of compassion and full of love? We know that the Bible says that love covers a multitude of sin. And so it shouldn't come as a shock or a surprise to us that God is attracted to and Jesus is attracted to a heart of compassion, a heart of sensitivity, a heart of love. And apparently this centurion is a man of extraordinary compassion and love. And we're going to find out humility and faith. He turns to Jesus in the moment of crisis. Where will you turn? Who will you look to? Who will be the surprising person or thing that will capture your attention and your confidence. A.W. Tozer wrote, quote, if our faith is to have a firm foundation, we must be convinced beyond any possible doubt that God is altogether worthy of our trust. And so it doesn't come as a shock or a surprise that many of us don't trust the Lord. They don't. We live in a culture that is unbelievably committed to distancing itself from the things of God and the people of God and the word of God. But it's incredible to me what they will believe. My wife is visiting our children and grandchildren this week and I'm getting ready to go to the FBI training center. So I'm sort of on my own this week. And I did something that I rarely do in almost 32 years of marriage. I think I've went shopping three times in 30 years. And yeah, I went to the store. And I shopped. And I saw those headlines. Have you seen the headlines? You know, those stupid little newspapers that are there at the checkout stand as you're getting ready to try and leave? And here's what you read in the headlines. Dinosaurs honked like Buicks. Really? Cow mattresses help cows produce more milk. Mom on a diet of only chicken lays a huge egg. World War II bomber found on the moon. Woman gives birth to a two-year-old baby. Child walks and talks in three days. Adam and Eve's bones found in Asia. Eve was really a space alien. Man marries a woman with two heads. He's arrested for bigamy. You know, it's crazy. It's crazy that people will, will read this stuff and what's even crazier, believe it. But then they'll come to church. And they'll open up their Bible and they'll read this passage and they'll read what happens and they'll ask themselves this question, is this true? Could it possibly be true? Is there a real God? Is there a real God who, who loves me? Is there a real God who cares about me and my circumstances? Another soldier 
at a much later date wrote, quote, this is what I found out about religion. It gives you the courage to make the decisions you must make in a crisis and the confidence to leave the results to a higher power. Only by trust in God can a man carrying responsibility find repose, unquote. That quote comes from Dwight David Eisenhower, who in World War II carries the weight of a nation on his shoulders as he confronts evil and he begins that long and arduous process of securing freedom. Dwight David Eisenhower will then later be elected president of of these United States. The burden won't become less, the burden becomes more. And as your burden increases and the difficulty increases and the pressure increases and then the pressure gives way to a crisis, what are you going to trust? And it's incredible to me that the last thing in the world that the culture wants to trust is God, Jesus, and the Bible. But look what Jesus says in such simple, stark, profound language. Jesus says in verse 7, I'll come and heal him. That's fairly simple, isn't it? He doesn't go... Oh, by the way, were you here for my Sermon on the Mount message? Were you here in chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7? Let me give you my notes. He doesn't just simply say that. He says, I'll do it. I'll come and heal him. And by the way, there's raging debate among Bible scholars about this simple passage in verse 7. Does Jesus say, I myself am coming to heal him? Or... Do you want me to come and heal him? Because in the Greek language and in the original language, there aren't periods, commas, or question marks. The grammar and the language supports both as a possibility. So is he saying, I myself am coming to heal him, or do you want me myself to come and heal him? In the context and seeing Jesus touch the leper, it may be that Jesus is stating the obvious. I'll go. I'll heal your servant. And this is one of those occasions where grammar and sentence construction seems to emphasize the willingness, the willingness of Jesus to go. It's as if Jesus is saying, I don't know what you've heard about the Jews in the past, but I'm willing to do this myself. The reason why I think that this becomes so important is because Jesus is eager to help. He's eager to help. He's eager, filled with compassion. Just like the world in which you live. There are, there's a world in which you live in which people will say to you, well, I didn't know that God was this way or that Jesus was this way. And you as a Christian, you as a Christian have to be prepared to say, I don't know what you've heard about God and I don't know what you've read in the Bible. But let me tell you what it says. Jesus is eager to help. Putting our faith and trust in Jesus is a willingness to believe that he loves us and that he cares for us. And faith begins and ends with confidence in Jesus. And now the centurion doesn't just simply 
have made a request, he now has Jesus' word. The moment Jesus opens his mouth and says, I'll come, I'll do this, the centurion is convinced that it has to happen. I heard this story, I'm trying to remember under what circumstances, where a man was uh, talking with his daughter about um, that he was going to build her a dollhouse. And she said, Daddy, will you build me a dollhouse? And he said, sure, honey, I'll build you a dollhouse. And so he went back into his study, and she went to the garage, got the hammer, got the tools, got the wood. She starts taking them, the, them out, and, and the mom goes, sweetie, what are you doing? And she said, dad said he's going to build me a dollhouse. And the dad goes, I didn't mean like right at this very moment. But the moment her dad said, I'm going to do this for you, in her heart, it was already done. The project had already begun. That's the point that is being made here. Jesus is ready to work. When John Patton was translating the Bible for a South Sea Island tribe, he he discovered that in that culture, in that language, there was no word in their language for trust or faith. And one day a native who had been running hard came into the missionary's house. He flopped himself in a large chair and he said, it is good to rest my whole weight on this chair. And the missionary, the light went on in his head. And he goes, that's it. That's it. That's how I'm going to translate faith. As resting my whole weight on God. And so look what it says in verse 8. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. But only speak a word And my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to the one, go, and he goes. And to the other, come, and to my servant, do this. And he does it. Let's take the text at its word. The centurion, in humility, doesn't consider himself worthy. Remember what we've already learned? Jesus is attracted to people with sensitivity and compassion. There's something about a loving, compassionate person that Jesus finds attractive. And I'm going to suggest to you there's something about humility that Jesus also finds attractive. You know, John the Baptist didn't consider himself worthy to baptize Jesus. Interesting again, remember when Jesus goes to him and and says, okay, I'm here to be baptized. And John the Baptist says, you know, this is probably a bad idea. I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. And Jesus says, let's do this so that we can fulfill all righteousness. Again, the centurion doesn't place his confidence in his ability or his title, or his virtue, or his goodness, or his generosity. He didn't say, hey, did you get the note from the Jewish leaders of Capernaum that I'm one of the good guys? I'm one of the guys who cares about Jews, and cares about Judaism, and cares about religious freedom, and and cares about worship. He doesn't do any of those things. He simply says, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. 
Again, some scholars might say he's doing that to give a Jew an easy out to avoid some sort of cultural catastrophe. And there might be an element of that. You see, the truth is, we all need to learn how to not needlessly offend. Sammy Tanago was on my radio program years ago, and he was born in Cairo. He has a ministry to Muslims. He loves the Muslim people, works hard at reaching out to them. And on my radio program, I had something less than kind and less than charitable to say about Islam and Muslims. And he said to me, Pastor Gino, can you confine your offense to the gospel? I didn't laugh. I was cut to the core. It was as if Jesus spoke to me. It was as as if Jesus said to me, could you make an effort to confine your offense to the gospel? Because the gospel is offensive enough. If you just simply tell people that they're sinners in need of a savior, you're going to close the door to so many people. And I want so much to do exactly that. Not to needlessly offend. But it's again interesting. In the very irony of admitting in humility his unworthiness to have Jesus come to his home, he makes possible the invitation for Jesus to come into his heart. Because Jesus is attracted to people who care, who are sensitive and who love. He's attracted to people who are humble in their heart because it's the brokenness of heart that allows the entrance of Jesus into the heart. The Roman soldier may have been thinking, it's enough for the master to simply command it to be so. Jesus is unwilling to submit to other people's fear. He's unwilling to submit to other people's prejudice. He's he's unwilling to submit to other people's cultural contamination when they say, you're a Jew and you can't go to a Gentile's house. And Jesus goes, I'm the Lord of heaven and the second person of the Trinity. I can pretty much do whatever I want. But there's a lot of people who will tell you that there are certain things that Christians can't do. And when a person says to you, you can't exercise compassion, care, love, humility, they're not being exactly honest with you. Jesus is willing to minister to the outsider. And look at the centurion's statement, but only speak a word. And my servant will be healed. This is perhaps the key expression of faith in the passage. There's a crude literal translation. It reads this way. You just say the word. You just say the word. Has anyone ever said that to you? Maybe a family member, a friend, a close friend, someone who really cares about you. They really love you. They've demonstrated their love and their care. And they've just simply said, all you need to do is just say the word. And I'll be there. You say the word. All you need to do is call me up and say you need something and I'll have it there for you. I was doing an interview with 
David Chadwick, who played for Dean Smith on their uh, Final Four team that went to the national championships in basketball. And he noted this as a leadership aspect of the coach. He said that the coach, when he said he was your friend, he really was your friend. And when he said, call me, he meant it. And when he said, say the word, he meant it. One word, one word, one word from Jesus, the problem goes away. A word from Jesus, the paralysis goes away. The problem goes away. The torment goes away. The pain goes away. And this is the first long distance healing in the gospel. And I find that interesting. Even unbelievers are capable of some kind of compassionate and sensitive support. I knew better than to say to my dad, dad, I have a problem. Will you take care of it? My Sicilian father would go, are you sure you want me to take care of it? Because when my father said, I'll take care of it, he meant it. He'll take care of it. And so I learned to be generous sensitive, and patient with my friends. And by the way, this kind of faith comes from the complete confidence of a Gentile outsider. And his confidence isn't in his, in his servant's sickness or even in his own faith. This centurion simply knows that if Jesus says he'll take care of it, he'll take care of it. Look again in verse 9. The centurion knows how to give and take orders. And when a centurion issues an order, he speaks not just simply for himself. He speaks for the commander of the cohort. And the commander of the cohort speaks for the emperor of Rome. So that when a centurion said something... It was as if the, the cohort commander said it. It is as if the emperor said it. So much so that this particular centurion knows that if Jesus says something, it's exactly as if, G, as if God had said it. To defy the centurion was to defy the cohort commander, to defy the emperor. And guess what? If you defied the emperor, then you also defied all the power that he had available to him. And so, if you think that this centurion is just some country bumpkin, pagan, Roman, primitive person who doesn't know better than to believe in the miraculous, then you misunderstand the whole point. The word that Jesus speaks is the word from God. And this centurion understands that completely. This centurion understands that the healing comes from the highest source, God himself. We might say that faith is confidence in the person in charge. You should tweet that. Faith is the confidence of the person in charge. Faith is confidence in the authority. 
And this occupation soldier knew that if he could command soldiers, how much more could Jesus command sickness and command the powers of darkness to disappear? All authority has been given to Jesus. And that's the testimony of the New Testament. Remember, Jesus himself says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And all authority probably means all authority. Jesus isn't hindered by distance. Jesus isn't hindered by circumstance. Jesus isn't hindered by the severity of the disease. But each and every one of us could probably think of a loved one who's far away or circumstances that seem insurmountable or a paralysis that is in their mind or in their heart that seems insurmountable. And Jesus gives you permission to care about them and to pray for them and to plead for them and to intercede for them. Jesus can answer our prayers for the person sitting next to us or for the person who's around the world, whether absent or present. Jesus was honored when the centurion expressed his confidence in Jesus. And the whole point is the object of centurion's faith, not the abundance of his faith, even though he refers to his faith later as much faith. Again, it begs yet another question. Do you find it easy Or difficult to believe Jesus. And you might think, I find it easy when I'm strong, when I'm healthy, when I'm financially secure. When you're strong and healthy and financially secure, rarely will you beg God for health and security and prosperity and blessing. You may, you may not. But we would do well to trust God for bread. Even when we work in a bakery, surrounded by bread. Imagine you're in a bakery and you go, give us this day our daily bread. And you go, it looks like my prayer's about to come true. But the principle applies wherever you are and whatever you're doing. I don't need to worry about money. I work in a bank. Or I don't need to worry about this. Or I don't need to worry about that. The truth. Your faith will be manifested in what you do in your very present circumstances. Do you expect from God both the believable and the unbelievable? Do you have more joy in your memories of what God has done in your life or in anticipation in your dreams about what God is going to do in your life? And look what it says in verse 10, faith's community. It says, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, assuredly, this is an idiomatic expression, which just simply means, I'm telling you the truth. I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. In Mark's gospel, Jesus marvels at the unbelief of the people of Nazareth in Mark chapter 6, verse 6. Now he marvels at this Gentile centurion's great faith. I want you to just think about this for a moment. As theologically stretching as it might be. 
Jesus is surprised. The Gentile soldier doesn't have the spiritual privilege of the Jews. Jesus is surprised in Mark chapter 6, verse 6, with the people of Nazareth who are the direct descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, of Judah. They have all of the promises of God. They have all of the promises that have been made. They have a promise that God is going to show up and that God is going to send his Messiah and that he's going to redeem them and reconcile them and forgive their sin. And when he does show up, they don't believe it. And this Gentile soldier doesn't have those spiritual privileges. How often do people with rich spiritual heritage have so little faith and those with so little spiritual heritage have great faith? You may have grown up in a Christian home and been exposed to the Bible from very early on and read it and had a mother and a father who loved you and who loved the Bible. And then you lived your life as a as if it weren't even true. And then you get somebody else. And they live in the most difficult of circumstances, the most unbearable of circumstances, the most violent of circumstances. And they grow up with sensitivity and compassion and humility and accountability and love and compassion and humility and accountability becomes the soil in which great faith can grow. So which do you think is more incredible? The miracle or Jesus' expression of admiration? For me, Let me tell you what my answer is. I read Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and the Gospels are full of miracles. I read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and there's very few expressions of admiration and surprise that come to Jesus. Miracles are fairly ordinary to Jesus. But faith is something extraordinary. No wonder it says in verse 11, and I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Note carefully that expression, the kingdom of heaven. Is Jesus speaking about a future in heaven? Or is he speaking about a future on the earth? What's interesting to me is the text itself. He says, and I say to you that many will come from east and west. And east and west is an idiomatic expression that speaks of the furthest places of pagan culture and pagan influence and pagan society. In heaven does the believing Gentile receive exactly what the believing Jew receives. Ancient Jews believed that when the Messiah would come, 
that there would be a great feast when all the Jews would come from all over the world. They believed that people would come from the furthest corners of the planet and they would all gather and they would gather in the land of Israel. They believed that Leviathan and Behemoth, the greatest beasts in the land of the sea, would taxi them from the distant lands and the distant shores. There were no airplanes or, or trains back in those days. There's an interesting writing in the Apocrypha, in 2 Baruch, chapter 29, verse 4, where we read, quote, And Behemoth shall be revealed from his place, and Leviathan shall ascend from the sea. These two great monsters, which I created on the fifth day of creation, and shall have kept until that time, and they shall be food for and there shall be food for all that are left, unquote. In other words, this is from Baruch. It's the sense of that people come from the far corners of everywhere using whatever transportation is available in order to have this gigantic feast. And the Jews believed, the Jews believed, the Jews believed with all of their heart that this great feast would come. And it never occurred to them that Gentiles would be invited to the party. Many Jewish leaders felt certain in the future kingdom in the earth with a restored Israel in the land and the Messiah ruling, the Gentiles would be destroyed. In Isaiah chapter 60 verse 12 it says, The nation and the kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste, unquote. So again, I want you to think about what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that many will come from east and west at the dawn of the banquet and worse, not only will Gentiles be there, But some Jews will be left out. Imagine you're having a party. And everybody who thought were going to be there aren't going to be there. And the people you thought for sure weren't going to be there can't be there. Jesus is making it abundantly clear. Guess what? Don't be shocked and surprised when you see Gentiles at the party. And don't be shocked and surprised when you see some Jews missing. Look what it says in verse 12. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now again, this is a tragic statement. But the sons of the kingdom. Who are the sons of the kingdom? These are the heirs. These are the heirs of promise. A son is an heir. The sons of the kingdom are the heirs to the kingdom. These are the men and women who are the rightful recipients of the promises that were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of the tribal people. Jesus is suggesting that Gentiles as well as Jews are going to share in God's inheritance, but who would have guessed that Jews would share with unbelieving Gentiles in punishment? You probably already heard that there are going to be people in heaven that you've never, never, never would have guessed. And it should be the most surprising moment in all of your existence when you find yourself there. (laughs) 
part of the point that Jesus is making is that all expectations are going to be reversed. The Jews thought all Jews would be welcome. The Jews thought all Gentiles would be unwelcome. William Barclay writes, the Jew had to learn that the passport to God's presence is not membership of any nation, it is faith. The Jew believed that he belonged to the chosen people and that because he was a Jew, he was therefore dear to God. He belonged to God's Ehrenvolk, that is, chosen people. And that was enough to automatically gain him salvation. Jesus taught that the only aristocracy in the kingdom of God is the aristocracy of faith. Jesus Christ is not the possession of any one race of men. Jesus Christ is the possession of every man in every race who has faith in his heart. Unquote. Remember what we've already seen. It's the kind of faith that is loving, compassionate, sensitive, humble, accountable. Those who would exclude a person from the good news of Jesus on the basis of race or culture or color almost certainly will find themselves in a place of darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. This darkness, this weeping, and this gnashing of teeth speaks of an utter failure of expectation. And look what it says in verse 13. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way. And as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed at that same hour. Jesus heals a man he's never seen, met, or touched. And it wasn't the faith of the centurion that healed the servant. It was the confidence that the centurion had in the person of Jesus Christ. In that sense, Jesus declares an amazing principle. The measure of faith is also the measure of blessing. And it's a principle that applies to you. The measure of faith reveals the measure of blessing. The fact that the servant is healed the same hour proves and provides proof that Jesus is able to do things in response to faith and that's the idea one word from Jesus the paralysis disappears one translation reads you can go home now everything has happened just as you believed I like that translation especially in the second service with people looking at their watches you can go home now Everything is exactly as you have believed. Tell me again what it is exactly that you've believed. Is it confidence in Jesus? Have you cultivated the soil of your heart with sensitivity, compassion, love, humility, accountability? Because if all of those elements are there, then you have all of the seed for great faith. One word from Jesus. 
the paralysis disappears. You know, we as Christians don't always believe like we should. We've been fooled by the lie into thinking that if we just had a little more faith, that our loved one would be healed or changed. If we had a better job, the bills would be paid. The sickness would go away. A.W. Tozier writes, Faith is not optimism, though it may breed optimism. It's not cheerfulness, though the man of faith is likely to be reasonably cheerful. It's not a vague sense of well-being or tender appreciation for the beauty of human togetherness. Faith is confidence in God's self-revelation as it's found in the scripture. Faith is confidence that what he has said about himself and you is true. Think about what you've read. A Roman soldier in a hostile country on the outskirts of an empire finds himself in unimaginable need. He needs help. His beloved servant hopelessly sick, beyond the skills of any Roman doctor, beyond the skills of any Greek physician, he hears about Jesus. He perhaps even sees the healing of the leper and he understands what no one else seems to fully grasp at that very moment, that Jesus is the son of God that Jesus has authority, that Jesus has ability, that Jesus has the ability to make a promise and keep his word. You see, that's what faith does. Real faith allows us to see Jesus as he really is. Not just what you think he is, Or even the mistakes that you used to think about him. Judge Robert Bork wrote, religion is declining because those identified with it don't actually believe it. Unquote. What could be sadder than that? To meet a Christian who doesn't really believe that the Bible's true. But what would happen if one day you believed with all of your heart? That the Bible's description of the nature of Jesus and the character of Jesus and the mission of Jesus is absolutely true. You know, again, on my journeys shopping, I came across one other article. It was a survey that was done. People over the age of 95 were asked an open-ended question that they could answer any way they wanted to. If you could live your life over again, what would you do differently? The three most frequent responses. Number one, I would reflect more. Number two, I would risk more. Number three, I would do more things that will live on after I'm dead. I thought about that. I thought about a quote from D.L. Moody who said, Trust in yourself. And you're doomed to disappointment. Trust in your friends. They'll die and leave you. 
Trust in money, and you may have it taken away from you. Trust in reputation, and some slanderous tongues will blast you. But trust in God, and you're never to be confounded in either time or eternity, unquote. You know what's really interesting? It's not a great big risk to trust Jesus. There's no one more trustworthy. There's no one who's better able to keep his promise. Trust him. Trust that he'll give you a heart of love. Trust that he'll give you a heart of compassion. Trust that he'll cultivate and work in you a heart of humility and accountability because when all of that begins to take place, what will awaken in your heart? Great faith to believe the truth about what Jesus says about himself and you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, it seems crazy to me that people would believe headlines that are so unbearably false. And then they refuse to believe the one headline that is absolutely true. God is real. And you can trust him. Lord, I think of the people in my own life. People I talk with and pray with almost on a daily basis. People who don't really truly believe that you're the Lord. People who are paralyzed. People who, like Paul described, have scales on their eyes that refuse to drop. And Lord, we pray for our loved ones. We pray for the people that we care about, that those scales would in fact drop, that they would hear the gospel, that they would respond in true faith and experience what it means to know you and love you, to experience wholeness and wellness so that the paralysis of unbelief would be cured. And so, Father, again, We commit these things to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand.